Hello everyone and welcome to the seventh episode of You Have to Watch This. I'm Clayton Terry here with my co-host Ted Ryan. Last week, or we should say several weeks ago, because we took quite the hiatus after spring break and then just busy few weeks in terms of classes and work and whatnot, we went over book adaptations slash horror movies, Misery, and Silence of the Lambs. Had a really fun discussion that I only vaguely remember because <laughs> it was a while ago. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was very enjoyable. Yeah, definitely. And um, last time, we said that we would watch classics. That's what we decided. Old movies, black and white. Black and white films that we hadn't seen. Yes, that's the point of the podcast. <laughs> so It's but- called You Have to Watch This. You can find it on Spotify, <laughs> iTunes, Anchor. Not iTunes yet. We're work- We're working on it. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so just movies that are classics, that are beloved by film culture, that um, are black and white, that each of us wanted to share with one another. So, I did the intro, which means, Ted, you are flipping the penny. I have the ceremonial penny in my hands. Heads, you're up. Heads. Yes. I would like to talk about Harakiri first. Harakiri is... The film that I recommended to you, it is a 1962 film by Masakai Kobayashi. It is a Japanese film. We watched the subtitled version. I'm not sure if there is a dubbed version, but this film is a phenomenal masterclass in every aspect of filmmaking, in my own personal opinion. Uh, I had first been exposed to this film as part of a samurai history class. Uh, the same class where in which I uh, watched um, Kurosawa's Hidden Fortress. This was, this was a film that we watched over several class periods as they were both, I think, like hour, 55 minutes long. You know, like so around that time frame. So we had to cut it up. And whereas I love the film... On the first viewing, and I was left with a strong impression. Watching it through the second time, I was like in pure, pure joy and pleasure and adoration uh, watching this film. I was there are so many moving scenes and powerful visuals and language and poetic beauty at hand that I was just in tears at multiple points in this film. Clayton, what did you think of Harakiri? I had high expectations. Um, Letterboxd, the movie website that we both frequent, has this at the fourth highest rated movie of all time. Up there with Seven Samurai and then the Two Godfathers, I believe, are the ones that um, precede it. So above a lot of really classic beloved movies. And I was not disappointed. I It wasn't what I expected. It felt like it could have been made today almost it felt very contemporary it very much feels the term i'm about to use gets thrown around a lot and i want to think of a better term for it but the term i'm thinking of is very postmodern it feels very much a a critique of not only you know samurai films as a genre but you know japanese history samurai history you know, the 60s, you know, and, you know, maybe you could say this younger generation of filmmakers were criticizing the old. Yeah. And I guess that's kind of the main theme of the film, you know. Um, 
is samurai honor a facade? Yeah. Um, and what what do you think of you know the the film's narrative and themes? Yeah, I definitely want to wait a minute on the theme because that theme of kind of fuck your honor is probably my favorite part of this movie. So I want to save that towards the end. Narrative wise, I was on board right away. So we have this incredible opening scene of the main character arriving at this place asking to commit harakiri or suicide um, noble suicide and the people there tell this story of someone who came earlier seeking money and didn't actually plan to commit suicide i won't go into spoilers quite yet but just this incredible opening scene immediately kind of grabs you in a way that I think some people would argue older movies don't usually do. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope I don't get a wince out of you for saying this, but I was immediately on board because of the almost Tarantino-esque non-linearity of... <laughs> I got a wince. Of oh. the plot. <laughs> this feels like one of the movies that he definitely like stole. Not stole. He repurposed many elements from because everyone knows that he's done that for a bunch of movies that aren't as common in western cinema and building off of that point the film's structure and the narrative is very interesting in that it's essentially stories upon stories or you know stories within stories and you know we keep cutting back from the past to the present and trademark in the hands of a lesser director (laughs) or writer uh, this would get very monotonous or boring, but it o- always feels as if the stakes are ramping up with each increasing um, a flashback or story told. And there's a really interesting like use of like editing where like it cuts from like the past to the present, and there's always like a really strong like damn moment, like oh, like the protagonist, um, the actor for the protagonist has a really diverse and like strong performance and you really see like just the change in his eyes as we go from one time period to another really like yeah takes the breath out of you Mm -hmm. the like sudden switch and it turns from like a man who's like again i won't go into spoilers but a man who's much happier in the flashbacks than he is where he currently um the clan he's currently with it's like we go from like just like a, a, a man like bre- uh, brimming with happiness and then we cut to the present and he looks like a corpse. Like he, he looks like he, he's already dead. Yeah. And I find, I, I bring up Tarantino because I find that that's something that he does a lot where if you analyze the real time narrative, it's a person telling another person a story. We see that a lot in both Kill Bills and Hateful Eight where the actual like punch of the narrative takes place in a flashback. But it works so well because it juxtaposes with what is currently happening. And also, he was brought to mind because this movie was surprisingly gory. Um, I guess it was made in the early 60s, which by then they were kind of experimenting with this stuff. But still, um, some of the Harakiri scenes are really, really difficult to watch in a way you don't see for older movies. We mentioned that while watching it together that because the film is in black and white, the gore in the film has an added disgustingness to it. It's really uncomfortable in the way that it's like when blood 
exit someone's body, it's essentially like pure black. And it's like really, I don't know what they used for that. You know, different movies will use different yeah. blood essentially substitutes, but it was just like... Because they don't have to get the red and like the accurate look, they can almost play with like the texture and the viscosity of it. It looked oily. And, yeah, and that makes it like eerie and like it did i don't think it went for this in this film but you can make it like look kind of inhuman which is cool to play with i know uh one of the greatest examples even though it is in color of kind of making blood look especially uh haunting is the shining with it all pouring out the right. elevator and the famous story of stanley kubrick saying that it was mud or something to convince people to <laughs> include it in the trailer which is awesome and it also reminds me of um uh, Tom Savini's work on Dawn of the Dead, uh, George yes. Romero's 1978 film, I believe. They they used, like, I think paint or something really cheap for the blood. So all the blood is this really hideous, like, pink red color that's really unsettling. So when a character, like, shoots a zombie, uh, blood splatters, it's like, it's so, like, vilely disgusting, you know? It's, yeah, it's almost like the color of brain matter or something yeah it's like that uh uncanny valley effect you know we know what blood looks like but with this added veneer of black and white it just yeah. has this layer of creepiness definitely and then just kind of while he's telling that story in the uh ceremonial location where it is expected that one would commit uh harakiri the way the camera movements and the blocking is able to capture a sense of grandiosity on the scale of not only the flashback, but also the things we're hearing him say and what is actually occurring in such a confined space. I found also just incredibly gripping. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's it's it really is breathtaking. And I'm going to say that a hundred times yeah. for this. It like building off of that, like. They the production design for the sets is so beautiful and the lighting yeah. for those sets is so beautiful and they constantly like it's such a small courtyard where like 50% of the movie takes place but they constantly display it in new ways that it feels like it never gets old you know it's it's and the way the characters move within that set beautiful yeah definitely and the way the buildings laid out is looks incredible but it also kind of serves a narrative structure as we'll come to find out as the film progresses that it pays off to have been paying attention to how everything is laid out at mm -hmm. the beginning of the film so i thought that was really cool absolutely um would you like to discuss the plot in further detail yes we can move into spoilers now so the film starts uh with this samurai a ronin a masterless samurai uh, entering a castle, asking to commit ritualistic harakiri, the process of suicide. The owners of the castle, the E clan, are tell him a story of a young man that came, I believe, a week or two earlier to do the same exact thing. You know, there is this ongoing struggle in the society. You know, this is a a, a society that really like was a warlike society, but with the rise of the Tokugawa shogunate. You have this long period of peace where there's really a, an era of almost stagnation in some regards and extreme growth in others, most notably the merchant sector, which 
is briefly touched upon in the film, the rising power of merchants. I'm getting ahead of myself, but um, essentially many Ronin ask to commit Harakiri so that they can die an honorable death fitting for a samurai, a death by sword, um, even even if it is their own sword. And some Ronin have been going to uh, castles uh, in doing so, but essentially get paid off by the castles in, you know, essentially a, a token reward or a token, you know, thank you for your honorable deeds. Uh, here's some money and we'll send you on your way. It is revealed that this first person is the son of the protagonist. Son-in-law. Son-in-law. Uh, Motomo. And what follows is essentially the story of how the ruination of Motomo's family and how their period of happiness and pure joy in the protagonist gaining a grandson and then losing the grandson and seeking vengeance for the way the E-Clan had treated the family is Mm -hmm. kind of the narrative. Yeah. What I really liked about how that began to play out is we learn that the protagonist is up to something basically is the exact same time as the e-clan does um and that's something i always appreciate in movies is when dramatic irony i don't i don't really like it all i don't like watching (laughs) characters do something when we know it's the wrong choice like it's kind of you like want to shake them um but i also don't like when a movie kind of talks down to its characters when it's like this is obvious and the audience is figuring this out or the other way around and they talk down to the audience and things are happening that don't necessarily make sense and they're just like go with it it's the movie i really like that they trusted the audience to figure this out at the same time as the antagonist did and it really you know like you mentioned, like the suspense really yeah. hits when it does with each yeah, reveal yeah. and every tidbit. You know, whenever the protagonist, uh, Sugumo, uh, reveals uh, a new piece of the story, um, all the retainers and samurai surrounding him in the courtyard are all kind of like, Hoo! you know, kind of yeah. jolt in surprise. Literally. And, <laughs> and, you know, likewise, I was kind of gasping at some of the reveals, even though I knew what was coming. It's yeah, so definitely. such a well-told and crafted story. Both the film itself and the story he is telling diegetically within the tale. He has them on the edge of their seat as he does the audience. Like, the actual audience. Absolutely. And he's toying with them as he's telling the story. He is very much one man versus a hundred in this story. But he always has control over them. He is laughing at them. He's playing with them. And it's... You know, as as the story goes along, the E-Clan gets more and more frustrated with him. You know, that they... He's destroying them with his logic, essentially. Yeah. And it's just a really... You know, seeing his kind of, like, cocky arrogance kind of turn to sort of fear nor- towards the end was really a great change in performance. Definitely. So we've laid out kind of the plot. Would you want to go into the themes now? More that we're into spoilers. Yes. So I mentioned earlier, uh, and this is a theme that is essentially directly asked to both the E-Clan and the audience. Is samurai honor a facade? And 
I think at the surface level, the film's answer would be, yes, it is a facade. This samurai honor is nothing but a sham for the aristocrats to keep themselves at the top of society and to pat themselves on the back for how honorable they are. However, I think upon a closer inspection, I think it is there's a more complex answer. And I believe that samurai honor does exist, but not for all. I think for a majority of the samurai, especially the E-Clan, samurai honor is a facade. But for the protagonist and his son, samurai honor is very much real and alive based on their actions and deeds. Yeah, samurai honor doesn't come from how sharp your blades are. It comes from do you care for your family? Will you sell your blades to feed your child with a fever? Will you give up your samurai life to care for your son-in-law and daughter? Will you, instead of killing the people who were responsible for your son-in-law and basically your entire family's death, do you cut off their uh, ponytails? Top knots. Top knots. Um, that's what samurai honor is. You know what? <laughs> like <laughs> Kendrick Lamar has the one song where it's like <laughs> um, running with gangs and like having a gun doesn't make you real. What makes you real is caring for your motherfucking family. <laughs> um, and it's like kind of the same thing, obviously very different context and whatnot. But it's like where your honor isn't from how nice your palace looks or how ornate your ceremonial armor is. Yeah, exactly. Good, exactly. How well-trained you are at the itchy-o uh, swordsman style, you know? It comes from who you are, like, inside. Absolutely. And, you know, this is something we've mentioned before, but, you know, you mentioned the Kendrick Lamar song. I think what I... My favorite types of films are, you know, characters in bizarre settings and fantastic locations but they're at the core there's always a real human truth yeah at the core of it that everyone can relate to mm-hmm. never been to japan never really held a sword i know what the i i know the the feelings of this film definitely and i mean i talked about that this theme was part of my was arguably my favorite part of the movie um because i found it kind of poignant for today like that class struggle Almost, where it's like the E-Clan lives lavishly as Motomo and Kingo suffer. And they come in with Motomo's body and it's like, check out these blades. Like, he wasn't even real. Like, and they, they're they just tone deaf and blind to, like, the situation. And it, it's just like, seriously, it's like your honor can go fuck yourself when it's... When my child is dying in the room over, when everyone I love is dying, like, I found that so powerful, even in today's context of just, like, looking down on people because they don't have these pretty silly articles that we established as displaying wealth or power. The E-Clan may have wealth in material goods, but... Uh, Sugomo's uh, family is has wealth in the human kind, the you know, yeah. a, a wealth in love being shared. Definitely, and I think that's one of the main reasons that this film is still so beloved today is that kind of timeless, resonant theme, as well as just a very well told story that influenced many directors going forward. 
And speaking about influencing directors, before we move on, we need to talk about some of the visuals in this story. The visuals and the music yes. in this story. There are so many beautiful shots where it's so surreal. There is a very dreamlike feel, feel to this film where, you know, very slow, deliberate camera movements, characters moving very strangely through the frame um, and very uh, ordered, you know, there's yeah. there's one shot very early on where there's a, uh, a dolly shot through like a hallway, whereas there's a series of screens blocking the figures from us. Yes. As one character walks out into the open from behind a screen, another character walks behind a screen. And it's just like this like, like beautiful movement in movement, if, if that makes sense. It's, it's hard to say. And there's such a variety of strange camera movements as well um when the sun is committing harakiri there you have to have a second at your side who will like behead you upon completion of the ceremony and as his second draws his sword the camera basically tilts like a whole 60 70 degrees and it's really weird and yeah. cool and i don't i don't necessarily know the thematic reasons for that off the top of my head but it definitely does a really good job of like keeping you engaged you know what i mean i always felt that like whenever there was a very strange directorial choice it like amplified the emotions of the characters like and i think it shines the best with the scenes of the sun and his panic you know Mm -hmm. there's a lot of extreme extreme close-ups of him sweating and like nervously looking around and Part of me wants to say, like, that might be my favorite part of the film. The parts with really? his son. It's powerful. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it definitely captures the stress and just, like... At 12 Angry Men does the same trick with... It starts with a bunch of wide angles that, as the jurors are just kind of meeting each other. And then it pulls in slowly as it gets tenser and tenser. And they get sweatier and sweatier because yes. of how hot the room is. And this film uses that same trick to really convey the emotions of the characters. Because if you just had a wide shot of him stabbing himself, that doesn't have the same impact. And that really adds that, like, you know, most of the film takes place in one courtyard, but because of, you know, what we just mentioned, we really put ourselves in that scene with each shot. Definitely. Yeah, a lot of visuals, namely the um, battle in the wind with the third guy. Whose name I don't remember. Got goosebumps just thinking about that scene. That is pure cinema. Definitely. We start this duel between samurais as the samurai of the E-Clan comes to essentially challenge the protagonist to a duel where, and in his home, he's, you know, set up a small shop where he makes umbrellas. These umbrellas create these beautiful foreground elements that perfectly frames the character's They are essentially, he's in a cage of his own making, very literally. We cut to the two of them walking through this Buddhist graveyard, the Shinto Buddhist graveyard, and it's so surreal and ghastly, and it's such a departure from everything else we've seen in the film. Very strong, naturalistic elements and wooden architecture, Mm -hmm. moving to this bone-gray desert of monuments, and then... We follow that up with a bamboo forest swaying in the wind. 
uh, and the two of them just walking in silence. And finally, we come to this grassy hill covered in, you know, clouds overhead. The the grass swaying in the wind. Movie magic right there. You can't do it justice. Talking it, about it in the podcast, it's really... Um, you have to watch this. Yeah, it's one of the... <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the strongest parts of this film, especially visually, mm-hmm. and one of the most well-directed fight scenes, well-choreographed fight scenes that I've ever seen in a movie. It might be my favorite fight scene ever put to screen. Ever? Yes. Really? I don't even know what mine... Probably the lightsaber battle in Empire. That's a close contender, I or, would say. Or Kill Bills, um, the first one. That, that <laughs> huge fight scene. I love both of those. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably missing ones, but... Got Pilgrim's first fight. I could go on. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and with that, any closing thoughts on Harakiri? I cannot put to words my love and appreciation of this film. It is truly something special. I agree. Thank you for sharing it with me. Ted, the movie I had you watch was the 1942 classic Casablanca. By some sin, <laughs> you've never seen this movie before, but it ended up working out because we get to talk about it on this podcast. For anyone who is unfamiliar somehow, this film is about a cynical American who struggles to decide whether or not he should help his former lover and her fugitive husband escape from the French Morocco city of Casablanca. This takes place and was made during World War II, as I discussed last podcast. I first watched this in a couple classes or every time i've watched this before has been for a class a different one each time and my love for the film has grown each time ted what did you think of it first i would like to clarify um this was always a film that i've Mm. intended to see that's that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't give you a pass Uh, (laughs) i've intended to exercise more that doesn't mean i'm fit (laughs) (laughs) I really enjoyed this film. It was really, it really, it's a classic that stands the test of time. It's definitely, it was just a really well told story, a really fun and original story. You know, you think of a a noir war film, you know, you kind of have an image in your mind of what you're about to get. I was constantly surprised by this film and blown away, but blown away by great performance, great cinematography stellar music yeah i really enjoyed it definitely i mean you talk about how funny this movie is i think that's something that a lot of modern viewers don't always necessarily pick up on is how whip smart and quick and just frankly hilarious this movie is um we'll get into more of the specific jokes i imagine but for the characters of reno and then obviously humphrey bogart's rick blaine is just the dialogue they share is so funny and after a few viewings that becomes like one of your favorite parts (laughs) and i think what what makes it work is that it's humor that comes from very different backgrounds and styles of humor yeah that really play off each other in fun and inventive ways Mm -hmm. so to get into the plot a little bit avoiding spoilers um the setup for the movie is that if for some reason you don't know (laughs) um (laughs) People from all around Europe have been fleeing to Casablanca as the last stop to make their way to the Americas. This is controlled by the Nazis because they took France 
um, as we'll actually see later in the film. Um, and everyone here is vying to get out of Casablanca, except for our main character, Rick Blaine, who runs this sleazy saloon that has all kinds of people swinging by on their way out from the country. I would not say it's entirely sleazy, but it's not the most reputable no, place it's either. Not. It's it's a place befitting of its location and time period, I think. And its protagonist. <laughs> yes. And its owner. <laughs> the the setting of uh, Rick's American Cafe, I believe, yeah. uh, is very much an extension of the character Rick himself. Mm-hmm. And Rick is really the dominant force in this town because of his influence and the way he interacts with his not only his patrons but his employees it was really engrossing and captivating definitely and just to talk about the set design for this movie a little bit like harakiri this film is just a black and white gorgeous piece of cinema it definitely has those noir elements but it's also able to capture the romance of the story in the time period, I find um, that it wouldn't necessarily translate as well as if it was in color. I almost feel like at times when the scenes were essentially the most romantic, I almost felt like the film was shot as if it was a horror film. Really intense shadows and darks, and you know, unlike you know the way night scenes were films, very unsettling and creepy and. I think that's a thing with noir, actually. The, like, I've mentioned this motif on the podcast before, but the, like, smoke. Actually. (laughs) The, like, smoking um, femme fatale by the windows as, like, the light peers in. I don't, I wouldn't know, I don't know if I'd say horror. What you said, maybe I should clarify what I meant by, like, horror aspect. It's definitely... I think it's more so I'm less familiar with noir films and I come from a more horror background, but I think it was also a result of the rising tension of the film that definitely gives the tense feeling that I more closely associate with horror or I'm it's just more, I'm more familiar with it in that way. Yeah, definitely. I think they do probably play with that. I mean, some of the time that Ilsa and Rick spend together is probably scandalous and maybe that plays into why they're shooting it the way they are um but with that said i'd kind of want to move into the that aspect of the film the romance um so rick's just minding his own business in his (laughs) saloon when ilsa his former lover and her husband uh victor laszlo come in seeking visas out of the country and to America's Laszlo is a prominent um, resistant fighter in the France or I don't know German controlled Vichy France yes yeah um, so Rick spends the whole movie arguing with himself whether or not give up these visas this is one of the most classic romance stories of all time Ted what did you think that was a purposeful setup to make sure you liked it <laughs> no <laughs> well done good, good setup uh, i completely disagree with everything you just said uh, i didn't find that they had chemistry <laughs> well uh 
I kid. <laughs> um, and no, like you said, it's really fantastic romance story. It's one that you really don't know how it's going to end. Yeah. You know, uh, I think that might be uh, maybe secondary to the humor. It might be my favorite aspect of the film in the way that like this love triangle is very complex. There's no bad person no. in this. Yeah. They're, they're all upstanding people with, you know, understandable motives. And, you know, sometimes you can still love someone but fall apart. And that yeah. that kind of tough love, that unrequited love, can be really um, hard to sell in a way that I think is narratively engaging. But it's... Because you don't know which way this story is going to end, it keeps it... I think that's the source of the narrative uh, interest and tension. Yeah. More so than the looming German presence. Yeah, because like, if you... Like you said, everyone in this love triangle is relatable and understandable and human and um, empathetic towards each other. If you were going to pick an antagonist of the love triangle, it'd be Rick Blaine. It'd be our protagonist. Right. Because Victor Lazo is just like a perfect man. <laughs> He's a very stand-up <laughs> guy. And Ilsa, she is so clearly torn with this idea that she does truly love two men. And that happens sometimes. And it's one of the only films that tries to do this. And then of the ones that try it, it's the one that pulls it off the best and captures that feeling of like inner, tor- inner turmoil that's brought about by love triangles. Very rarely do I feel like romances in films feature emotionally mature and intelligent yeah, yeah. characters involved in said romances. The resolution to the love triangle is so satisfying because it's it's very unexpected and it's in a way almost like the best case scenario. Yeah. And the way Rick is able to seize on that and Mm -hmm. you know take that final growth as a character is excellent so we're kind of tiptoeing around the we're beating around the bush should we move into spoilers a bit and talk about the specifics of what you just brought up sure um take it away yes so after all this inner inner turmoil um rick surprises everyone he surprises raynol uh laszlo and ilsa that he is going to help them get to America. And not only is he going to help them, he's going to ensure that Ilsa and Victor Laszlo go together. At points in the film, you thought he wasn't going to give it to anyone. At points, you thought he was going to take Ilsa with him. But he ultimately makes the decision that Laszlo and Ilsa need to be together. And that's what's best for the country, for Europe, frankly. And also what's best for the person he cares the most about, Ilsa, because she does, at the end of the day, love Laszlo. She is married to Laszlo. I think what's so powerful about that decision for Rick is that it feels like, for the first time in years, it seems like he's finally beginning to live his life again by doing yeah. so. He's He is... In a very literal way, giving up the past and the things that he drowned his sorrows with in booze and liquor mm-hmm. um, and joins the fight against the Nazis in France. And 
he goes from being almost a reactive protagonist to being a proactive protagonist. Definitely. Um, I mean, he says it explicitly in the movie, we'll always have Paris, which is one of, I'll even just thinking about it, it makes me kind of emotional. It's one of the like most powerful things ever said in film that addresses that question of like, is it better to have loved and have lost than to have never loved at all? He's able to close that book of his life and get over it. He's able to pursue the cause without being reminded of Ilsa anymore. And I still, after four viewings, that still really gets me, if not more than the last few times I've viewed it. It was a very heartfelt ending, very sweet, bittersweet in a way. Absolutely. So you talked about joining the cause. Um, If that's it for the romance, I'd kind of like to talk about the war aspect of this movie. One of the things that I find also incredibly impactful about this movie is the way it talks about and handles World War II, given the fact that it came out in 1942. America had just entered the war. Um, This film, I don't think people were expecting it to be huge. Um, It was just made like any typical, like, studio movie. Um, No, like, big budget, goes through four directors, like, Gone with the Wind. No expectation of, like, Oscar success. It was just a really well-written movie. Budget flick. Yeah, exactly. Just like a typical movie. But it used the opportunity to kind of encourage america to join the fight because it is obvious um especially upon repeat viewing that rick is the policy the isolationist policy of the united states through the late 30s and early 40s until pearl harbor of not wanting to get into the fight feeling burned maybe by past experiences feeling like that's not my concern anymore and being persuaded to action. So many characters in this film almost like directly ask him to his face, most notably Laszlo, mm-hmm. um, why he isn't participating. And Renal too. And Renal. Um, why isn't he participating whereas everyone else is, you know? Um, and I have to wonder, like, you know, what would it be like to be an audience member? watching this for the first time yeah. in theaters you know what you know, you mentioned this but I, do you know if there was a change in like public sentiment towards the war following this film um i don't know i mean it probably the change in public sentiment probably came with pearl harbor more so so right. i think it would be hard to ascribe um anything to a piece of art necessarily um I it's something worth investigating i think yeah definitely like the cultural or the impact on the cultural zeitgeist on the World War. Definitely. And I mean, this movie's impactful and memorable knowing how World War II ends. Can you imagine how much more powerful and hopeful the ending message of this film is when you're at the very beginning of the war? Like, by 42, in 42, no one had any idea how it was going to go. Um, and I try and put myself in those shoes when watching this movie and I'm always brought back to the scene where they sing uh, La Marseille, I think is the like French national anthem, to overpower the Germans singing. And you see people crying. And those actors and actresses were actual refugees from 
these countries from France and just the raw emotion is captured so well of what it must have been like to be on a movie like this and to be living through this time um it's just it gets me every time (laughs) in a strange way it almost feels like a mix between a period piece and like a documentary yeah in a way like the fact that they use like real refugees like you can't accomplish that in a if you if you make a world war ii film today you know it's a real artifact of the time Mm -hmm. and it's just that's just another reason that makes this movie so special and lasting is instead of then told by us now it's then told by the people living it Mm -hmm. and and on top of the fact that this is one of the best written movies of all time on top of the fact that the two performances are the best romance arguably in film (laughs) this is just another element that adds to casablanca as the classic one of the greatest films of all time any closing points before i ask my final question regarding casablanca I really, 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 really loved the supporting cast. Yes, yeah. In this film, you know, Renault, um, uh, Laszlo, the uh, Sam, the the piano musician at Rick's cafe and best friend of Rick, as well as I don't remember the name, but the purveyor of the. Uh, other saloon in town or other cantina who is the shadier between the two and rick Mm -hmm. yeah everyone is uh like so interesting (laughs) like they're all their fully fleshed out characters the um the guy too at the beginning who has the uh travel visas whose name i can't remember even though i've seen him in other movies as well as the couple that rick helps them in the gambling scene yeah like you meet them they give a fantastic performance and they're gone. And you like such memorable performances in such a short span of time. Definitely. Really great stuff going on. I mean, the movie itself is very short. Like it's an hour and 40 minutes. So the fact that really, yeah, the fact that all these characters, it's like half an hour shorter than Harakiri. Yeah. (laughs) The fact that all these characters can have such a lasting impact, not only our two leads, but Laszlo and Reynolds and the other people you're talking about is again a testament to the dialogue and the performances and it's really snappy dialogue and quippy in a way that is very diegetic you know I yeah it it doesn't feel like the humor ever took me out of the film and only brought me in closer yeah it's it never feels forced it doesn't feel like this is a screenwriter flexing their comedy chops it's like oh this is how Reynold talks yeah <laughs> you know because he's I, the... I am shocked shocked that there's gambling in this <laughs> establishment that's my i think that's my favorite joke in the movie i also love the now that we're in spoilers the ending where he shoots the main german baddie and Reynold looks at him and then looks at his uh henchman and it's like round up the usual suspects <laughs> and they just run off it's uh oh, just everything about the movie is perfect in my opinion I'm really glad you showed it to me. Me too. Did you have one final question for me? I did. I want to ask the same question I asked you for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. This film is the third of all time, according to AFI, behind only Citizen Kane and The Godfather, 35 on IMDb's Top 250, and within Letterboxd's Top 20. Everyone regards it as one of the best movies of all time. Do you think it deserves that? 
Absolutely. There's not a doubt in my mind. Uh, I really have no complaints at all with this film. It deserves everything that it's gotten, all the praise that it's been received. I absolutely. I agree. I um, I'm glad that both times we felt that way that this question has come up on this podcast. But I think that's important to interrogate because. Sometimes I feel like people say movies are good because everyone says they're good. And we've always thought they were good. Absolutely. So I think it's important to put that to the test. Yeah. And digest a movie after you've seen it. And it's like, did I actually enjoy that? Or did I like it because other people tell me to like it? (laughs) So I think it's been easy with the last two that we've done this for. But I think it may not be the case for all of them. That is... A really fantastic question, and I think we should make a make it a point to do that moving forward with all films like this. All the, like, big temple. Uh, Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. I agree. Our topic that we chose for next week was, I believe, children's films. Yeah, movies we loved growing up. All right, so, pray tell, what, Clayton, shall I be watching Next week, or in two weeks, we should say. We may be yes. switching to a bi-weekly schedule moving forward. We are definitely switching to a bi-weekly schedule. <laughs> um, just works better with being in classes and working on top of this. Um, and hopefully we're able to have better conversations because we've had more time to digest the movies, more time to prepare, more time to watch them. Um, more yeah. time to do the art. Yes, yeah, that's important. More time to edit. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so anyone who has met me for uh, more than four minutes, I would say, knows <laughs> that I am obsessed with all things Disney, and this did not come about, uh, this did not come about in my teens, this was from the mor- moment I was conceived, I assume. Um, it's in I've, your DNA. Yeah, it's in my DNA. I love the stories that Walt Disney specifically, and then also his company once he had passed, chooses to tell and there's one my personal favorite you have not seen yet which i'm actually very excited to watch with you it's the lion king i figured that that would be the film uh i'd be watching yep i look forward to it this is like an i think it's like an hour and 10 minutes it is very short but it is amazing okay when i was a wee fourth grader (laughs) our teacher would read us some of her favorite literature and in that class i was introduced to the world of roald dahl the british author most notably you would know him from charlie and the chocolate factory uh the big friendly giant um james and the giant peach but one that i feel maybe gets overlooked a little bit is roald dahl's witches witches okay and there is a fantastic uh, movie adaptation of that story, and I remember I really loved it as a kid. It's almost, it's not really a horror film. It's a fun kid's adventure with some scary elements thrown in. Yeah, yeah. And I'm really looking forward to rewatching this because I haven't seen it in maybe 15 years, but I've never forgotten the aspects of both the book and the story. And I believe it's on Amazon Prime, so it's been in my memory as of late. 
I'm excited. I've heard of the book. I did not know there was a movie adaptation. So I, I know I've seen James and the Giant Peach and obviously Charlie and the Chocolate Factories, both of them. I think the Johnny Depp version is better. Brave tweet. We'll talk about that. I respect off, that. That's, off uh, record. <laughs> there are some interesting elements. <laughs> <laughs> the part with the puppets at the beginning is so funny. Um, well, yeah, I, I um, was quite fond of Roald Dahl growing up. I didn't spend as much time with the movie adaptations of his work. So I am excited for this film as well as Lion King. All right. Now for the outro. Speaking of outro, our intro song is Outro by Wolfpack. Ted Ryan, this guy, does the art. Where can people find more of it? You can find any or all of my artwork at my Twitter handle. That's Ted Ryan Art at These Fine Times, where you could see a multitude of projects, most notably schoolwork, but as well as some side stuff that I've been doing, including the podcast art you've been listening to. I also want to give a shout out to our friend Connor's band, yes. uh, Soul Human. We saw them recently at a Battle of the Bands this past Saturday on campus at RIT. And I did a logo for them, a sticker for them. So you can check them out on Instagram at Soul Human Jams. That's S-O-U-L-H-U-M-A-N-J-A-M-S. I spelled that whole thing out. Hold your applause. <laughs> awesome. I'll throw both of those uh twitter handles and instagram handles into the description as well for you to check out as for me i host two other podcasts the terry talks podcast that i do with my brothers we also talk about movies much like this one and stories worth sharing um again hopefully more conversations coming on those as well so be sure to check them out thank you for listening and we will catch you next week bye next two weeks bye bye